Bibles tonight, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, make that chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. And if you have been with us on Wednesday nights, you know we've been going through a series on living by principles. I think this is the last Wednesday night for that. We're going to shift to something different after tonight. But again, principle, preach. what's a principle? It's not as much a doctrine as it's a practice, how we make decisions, how we operate, or at least how we should operate. And uh, we've come to what uh, I'm going to label the 24th principle. And that's found here in 1 Corinthians 14. I'd like us to uh, read together, maybe we could read it out loud, uh, verse number 4 and verse 5. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4 and verse 5. Let's begin reading out loud verse number 4. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all speak with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except ye interpret that the church may receive edifying. That's our word of prayer. Father, again, we're thankful for each one that's here. Lord, we are aware that some of our folks are out of town Maybe some at home, not well. I pray to help them minister to each one where they're at. Lord, we thank you for our children the other end of the building in Patch Club and help our teachers as they try to instill some very basic Christian truths in their minds and their hearts. And Lord, as we look yet one more time at a principle that would help we as Christians to operate by, guide us, help us to understand what it is that Paul has written here and as we look in other places, may it be clear, help us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You would know that 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. We know that Paul was a church planter, Paul was a missionary. We know that Paul was sent out by his home church in Antioch. And uh, Paul went on three missionary journeys. Here in this book of 1 Corinthians, Paul takes 16 chapters to write to a church that he started on his second missionary journey. Keep your hand there, if you wouldn't, 1 Corinthians 14. Look in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is where Paul, on that second missionary journey, came to the city of Corinth, and it was uh, in the, his period of time in that city that he established the church that later he wrote 1 Corinthians 2, and then later than that, he wrote 2 Corinthians 2. You're in Acts 18. Look at verse number 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. So Paul came to the city of Corinth, and he began to preach, and folks got saved. And after they got saved, they got baptized. He started a church. Look there in verse 11, Acts 18, verse 11. The Bible says, and he, that's Paul and company, he continued there in Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. That is the second longest period of time that he stayed in any city. Anyone know what the longest was? Ephesus was longest. How long did he stay there? Three years. So that was the longest that Paul stayed in any place. The second longest was Corinth. After Paul had been there a year and a half, he felt it was safe to head down the road, let that church get established, put some other people in the leadership. 
shortly after Paul left Corinth, back there in 1 Corinthians, shortly after Paul left Corinth, he heard about troubles that were happening in that church. It's one thing to have the church in the world. It's another thing to have the world in the church. And what was happening in that Corinthian church is they were systematically losing ground here and there. And Paul, as any missionary, prayed, Lord, would you let me go back? Could I go back and face-to-face fix these problems? God wouldn't give him clearance for that. So in place of going back, Paul wrote this letter of 1 Corinthians. Almost every single chapter of 1 Corinthians is a correction of something. I wouldn't expect you to write it down, but chapter 1, he talked about divisions in the church. Chapter 2, he talked about how they measured preachers and teachers by how nice they sounded. Chapter number 3 talked about carnality. Chapter 4, bragging that was going on. Chapter 5, fornication in the church. Chapter 6, there were lawsuits. Christians were taking other Christians to court and suing them. Chapter number 7, there was a handsy, loose-as-a-goose touching going on between those in the church. Chapter 8, they were flaunting their liberty. In other words, they were saying, because we're saved and we're saved eternally, it doesn't matter what we do, what we say, how we live. They were flaunting their liberty. Chapter number 9, they had no sense of financial responsibility to their church. Chapter number 10, talked about the pride that it had set in. Chapter 11, they were careless about the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12, there was a misunderstanding about spiritual gifts. When we get to chapter 14, what we find here in chapter number 14 is that they're all competing about claiming that their spiritual gift was more important than anyone else's spiritual gift. And uh, the particular gift that most of them were bragging on, anyone know what that would be? Tongues. So they were claiming that they were speaking in an angelic language. No one understood what they were. They were claiming that they were speaking in an angelic language and how important they thought that that was. was. Look what he said in verse number 4, 1 Corinthians 14, 4 says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. And so if you're speaking in a language, Paul says, that nobody there understands, I guess you're getting helped by it, but no one else in the church is getting helped by it. Paul said, I'll tell you what would be a better gift to have than speaking in tongues. Look at the rest of verse number four. He says, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. So he said, far better than longing to speak in a language that no one understands, it would be far better if you spent that same time prophesying. We would say preaching. Why? Because preaching is going to help the whole church. Now, having said that, Paul knew those people. Paul knew that some of them would say, well, I don't care who I'm helping. I want this one, and I don't want any other gift but this one. Strange as it may seem, that is the pretty well the same attitude that's still going on in some churches. Having said that, now look at verse 5, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 5. 
Paul says, I would that you all speak with tongues. Now, I need to stop and make a comment here. Because some of you are going to say, what? I thought he just said that it wasn't beneficial. There's a difference between the tongues of verse 4 and the tongues of verse 5. Look closely at verse 4. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. Verse number 5. I would that ye all spake with tongues. What's the difference between the tongues of verse 4 and the tongues of verse 5? It's that little word unknown. Now, where the charismatics get themselves into trouble is they say, as long as the verse has the word tongues in it, that must be a reference to the spiritual gift of speaking in a language. But remember, verse 4, he says, if it's an unknown tongue, meaning nobody in the congregation knows what that language is. He said, if you're speaking in a language that no one knows what it is, all you're doing is edifying yourself. It's of no value to the church. He said, in that case, it would be better if you prophesy, if you better if you preach. But in verse number five, he's not talking about unknown tongues. Look at verse five again. I would that you all speak with tongues. You'll say, well, how is that different? That's a language that somebody at the church does speak. Uh, you know, from time to time, we've had some visitors, some Ukrainians and some Russians and some other languages, and how frustrating it is that we can't speak their language. Wouldn't that be a blessing if we, without learning, without studying, could speak their language? Folks, that'd be a great blessing. Paul is not against someone speaking another language. Yeah, that'd be a great help. Paul is against someone carrying on speaking language that no one knows. So just so you understand the difference between verse 4 and verse 5. Also, look at verse 4 at that word unknown. In your Bible, the word unknown is in italics. That's why it's kind of a slanted lettering. Our position on italics in a King James Bible is leave it right where it is. Don't ever change an italicized word. Many of the new versions have come to the conclusion if it's italicized, we don't need it. Therefore, we can take an italicized word out and there's no loss. If you take out the word unknown from verse 4, that is total confusion. Probably the best example, and I think Brother Gip was the first one that said it when I heard it, when you read over there in 1 Samuel 17, we read about a giant named Goliath who was killed by David. David killed Goliath. But when you go over to, I think it's 2 Chronicles, I haven't mentioned offhand. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles that another man killed the brother of Goliath. The brother of is in italics. If you are I was going to say crazy enough. If you are of the opinion that you can take italicized words out and there's no harm, then in 1 Samuel you have David killing Goliath, and in Chronicles you have someone else killing Goliath. You have to keep the italicized words. Don't mess with them. Don't touch them. 
Having said that, verse 4, he says, if it's an unknown tongue in the church, it'd be better that you don't say it. Keep it to yourself. It's not helping anybody. It'd be better if you prophesied or preached. Again, look at verse 5. I would that you all speak with tongues. Now, that's a legitimate, understandable language. But, he said, even better than that, even better than speaking a language that others can understand, rather that she prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. I want you to notice the word greater. It says, uh, greater is he that prophesieth. Now, I'm going to be very particular, and I need to for the point of this principle. He does not say in verse number 5, greater is prophesying than tongues. He says, greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues. How many sort of understand what I just said? He's saying it's a greater person who is exercising a gift that will help more people than it is somebody who claims to have a different gift that isn't helping any people. He said the greater is a Christian that can put aside their own interests for the whole. I'd like to preach on this title, teach on this title, if you're taking notes, the principle of being the bigger Christian. The principle of being the bigger Christian. Now, when I talk about bigger, I'm not talking about on a scale you hit a higher number. That's not a bigger. When I say bigger, I'm not saying that you're taller than everybody else. I'm not saying that your shoe size, uh, shoe, uh, shoe size is huge. I'm not saying that. A bigger Christian is someone who my grandmother always says takes the high road in a situation that they face. And what we're going to look at is a few situations in the Bible where two Christians in the same situation, and one decides I'm going to take the high road or I'm going to be the bigger Christian. Paul used the word greater. And so again, we're trying to look at this principle of being the bigger Christian, and may God help us to have that attitude. It's not what I want. It's what's going to be in the best interest of the church. Again, when I say a bigger Christian, uh, the challenge is, will you be a bigger Christian? Will you take the higher road, do what will help more people? You can let go of Corinthians. Look there in Matthew chapter 5. Let me give you a few scenarios and uh, no doubt, somewhere, these things are going to fit into your life. And the question is, in your situation, will you decide, I'm going to be the bigger Christian? Matthew chapter number 5, look there, if you would, in verse 23. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Uh, the Bible says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Well, hold it there just for a minute. Jesus is giving in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 what we call the constitution of the kingdom. Probably the specific application of what the Lord is giving is during the millennium. 
But here somebody, and we'll put it on today instead of pushing it forward to the millennium, somebody is coming to the altar. Now you and I recognize an altar in a church is where people make decisions. Uh, in the Old Testament, an altar is where they brought some kind of a sacrifice either to make things right with God or to just, in a way, say, thank you, God. So here we, we're going to call this uh, Brother A. Brother A is bringing his gift to the altar, be it this altar, be it an animal altar. He's bringing his gift to the altar. And as he comes to that altar, he remembers that there's another brother, let's call it in the church, that they have ought with each other. Pastor, what is ought? There, there is some strife. There is some friction. There, there have been words exchanged, and they all weren't happy words. That's the scenario. Two believers say, Pastor, I know believers, because it says if any man have a brother, we're talking believers, that's a believing term. Look again at verse 23. Matthew 5 and verse 23 says, Therefore, if thy bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Now, hold on a minute. Brother A is coming to the altar. He doesn't have ought against someone else. But he's aware that someone else has ought against him. He is not bitter at another Christian in the church or angry. or He has an exchange crosswords. The other has exchanged crosswords to him. So he's coming to the altar. He has a gift that he's bringing to the altar, no doubt for God. And he remembers. There's another brother who has ought against him. What's he supposed to do? Look at verse 24. Matthew 5, verse 24. The Lord says, Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So the Lord says, listen, it's honorable what you're doing. But he said, you know what would be more honorable? If you know that there's friction between you and another believer, go fix it. Leave the gift right there. Go find that other brother and fix it. Now, as soon as you and I hear those words, we're going to say what no doubt this man, Brother A, thought. I didn't start the problem. I didn't create the odd. I don't have an issue with that man or woman. I wasn't the one began it. I isn't. I isn't. I, I'm not the one that stirs it. And yet our Lord said, even though you might not be the guilty party in this crime, you will be the bigger Christian in this scenario. If you make an effort to go and fix what needs to be fixed. If you're taking notes, would you write this thing down? Uh, the first bigger, sorry, first the bigger Christian is the first to reconcile. The bigger Christian is the first to reconcile. Do you know that, uh, you say, oh, preacher, aren't you glad that that kind of ought isn't happening anymore? It's happening all the time. And yet God says there's something honorable about a Christian who, even if he hasn't started it, is the one who'll take the first step to try to remedy it. Wonder how many homes have been split apart because there is that kind of ought, and neither party will take the first step to try to fix it.
I wonder how many churches there is that kind of friction where it was maybe it was started back by something so foolish. I remember when I was in Bible college, this goes back to 1982. I was in Bible college and a preacher that was preaching at our church had preached a revival in another church. And he said, I think, it was a week-long revival, he said Sunday it felt as cold as a refrigerator. We're not talking about the outside temperature. We're talking about the temperature of the people in the church. He said he couldn't make any headway Sunday. Couldn't make any headway Monday, no headway Tuesday, no headway. It was so impossible to break through to that crowd that he actually considered telling the church, telling the preacher, I, I'm just leaving after the Wednesday night service. I'm not staying to the end of the week. We're not getting anywhere. And uh, yet instead of quitting, he decided that entire Wednesday night till Thursday that he was going to pray and fast all night long. And he asked the preacher to join him. The preacher said, sure, I will. And the two of them prayed and fasted all night long, all into Thursday praying that God would do something supernatural that Thursday night service, and God answered those prayers. Because in that Thursday, it was just a little bit easier, and so the evangelist decided, I'm going to have an invitation at the beginning of my message. And so he did. And he said, there's a woman that came to the altar. And she just started bawling. And... Uh, the preacher kind of knew what was happening. The evangelist had no idea. And after she finished weeping and bawling, she stood up ready to go back, and the evangelist said, hold on, whoa, hold on a minute. What just happened there? And you know that lady said that she had ought with another lady in the church, and God had for the last 24 hours been breaking her heart. That was answered prayer. And that evangelist said, is that other lady here? And sure enough, the other lady was on the other side of the building. That evangelist called that other lady up and he said, either we're going to get this fixed tonight or this revival's done tonight. Got those two ladies up and believe it or not, 20 years before, one of those ladies brought a jar of molasses to the church to give the other lady. And she went and handed that molasses to the other lady. The other lady didn't have a good grip on that jar, so it fell between both of their hands, fell on the ground, broke the jar, molasses all over. This woman accused this woman of purposely letting it go. This woman accused this woman of purposely not handing it all the way. That thing had carried on for 20 years. How foolish. And that evangelist took the bulls by the horns and said, you ladies get it fixed right now. And do you know revival broke out that night? Now, why would you wait 20 years? Why would you wait 25 years? We give a little bit of credit for this woman moving first at the invitation. We give less credit for the other woman that had to be dragged down there to get it fixed. Could I say, would you be the bigger Christian by being the first to reconcile? How many times in the scriptures do we read about two believers that were at ought with each other? 
In the Old Testament, read about Esau and Jacob. They just couldn't get along. In fact, Esau was so mad at Jacob, he wanted to kill him. We read of Saul and David. Saul was the king who basically ignored all of his kingly duties because he's interested in finding and killing David. And even in the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, who were partners on the first missionary journey, had such a falling out that they went separate ways before the second one. I see the first thing, the bigger Christian is the first to reconcile. Say, well, preacher, it wasn't me that started it. I don't think it was this man in verse 24 that started it. But the Lord said, be the first. Be the first to take the first step. Say, well, pastor, I just can't forgive them until they come crawling to me and beg for forgiveness. (laughs) Some people have that spirit. Do you know... Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They weren't asking for forgiveness. They were gambling for Jesus' garments while Jesus spoke those words. Stephen, when he was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. They weren't asking for forgiveness. I'm saying the bigger Christian is the first to reconcile. Now, folks, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's at work, whether it's in a church, if there is somebody that you are like that with, be the bigger Christian. Make the first step. Take the first uh, initiative. I gave you a second thing. Look there in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter number 9. Again, we're looking this evening at the principle of being the bigger Christian. And the bigger Christian is the first one to take a step to reconcile things, even if they're not at fault, even if they weren't the one that instigated the problem to begin with, Acts chapter 9. Look there, if you wouldn't, verse number 26. Acts chapter 9 and verse 26. The Bible says, and when Saul. Well, if you know Acts chapter 9, Saul got saved early, Acts 9. And he got saved between verse 5 and verse 6. So here, we know that Saul later was called Paul. And so Saul, Paul, same one here in the New Testament. Again, verse number uh, 26. The Bible says, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he assayed. That means he tried. He assayed to join himself to the disciples but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. You know the testimony of Saul before he got saved. Saul was a persecutor of Christians. And every Christian Saul could find, he would arrest, he would, he would says, hailing men and women to prison. That was Saul. It was so bad that we read in Acts 8 that the Christians scattered for their life from Saul. Well, in Acts 9, between verse 5 and verse 6, Saul got saved. And now that Saul's saved, instead of persecuting Christians, he's trying to gather with Christians. He was for a while in Damascus. He was for a while out in the desert, then back to Damascus. Now he's come down to the capital city of Jerusalem. Again, look at verse number 25, Acts 9, verse, or make it 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, just a new Christian, he essayed, he tried to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Look at verse 27. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Could I say, secondly, the bigger Christian is the first to receive. First point was the first to reconcile. Second one is the bigger Christian is the first to receive. Folks, you know as a church how much we're praying that God will bring visitors to this church. Some of those visitors are just visiting from other towns, came to church, on vacation, glad they're here. But you know, when a visitor comes, whether they're local or whether they're from far away, folks, don't stand back. Let them find their own seat, let them find their own place, let them find their own hymn book, let them find a place in the Bible. A bigger Christian is the first one to receive someone in a situation like that. You say, well, Pastor, a guy could kind of looks a little shady. Well, you might have looked a little shady when you first came. And you know what? They looked at Saul. And they said, we know Saul's reputation that he has been arresting Christians, and we think that that's what he's still trying to do. So they feared to have anything to do with Saul. Thank God that there was one in that church. His name was Barnabas. The name Barnabas means son of consolation, comfort. Barnabas said, I'll take a chance. That's why it says again in verse number 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Now, Barnabas could have done the beginning of verse 27 he could have done that after talking to, to Saul for 30 seconds. He could have met Saul at the door and say, you're Saul, yes, I mean, come on, I'll help you. He could have helped Saul get into that church after 30 seconds of greeting. But Barnabas could not have done the rest of verse 27 unless Barnabas had spent considerable time with Saul. Look what I mean again. Look at verse 27. The Bible says, and Barnabas took him, took Saul, and brought him to the apostles. Well, that would be pretty easy to do. And declared unto them, the, uh, the, the apostles, how he had seen the Lord in the way. You don't get that in 30 seconds. I'm saying that Barnabas decided, I'm going to spend some time with this new face, with this new visitor, with the, the, this, uh, this person, you don't get how he had seen the Lord in the way in 30 seconds. Barnabas spent some time with this convert. Keep reading. How he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. I'm saying that Barnabas was a bigger Christian because he was the first to receive. He was the first to try to take in this new person, make him feel welcome, make him feel at home. I'm going to guess that probably Barnabas had him over to whatever, his home, or had him out to some drive through restaurant, and let's sit down, let's take some time. I'm so glad that you've come. I wonder if some of Barnabas' friends said, you better not hang around that guy. We don't know what he's up to. And may I say to you, if you go out of your way to try to be extra friendly to somebody that comes, some people are going to look cross-eyed at you. And I think if, if they tried that on Barnabas, he said, hold on, gentlemen. 
we have been praying that God would bring some people. Let's not waste it. Now, hold on. Saul had been on the other side of that coin. There was a time not long before where Saul hunted Christians and persecuted them. Surely Saul had heard of the Apostle Peter. Surely Saul had heard of the Apostle John. Surely Paul had heard of the Apostle James and Matthew and Bartholomew. and Saul had heard of all of those people when he was still lost. I think that Saul was so excited about getting to that Jerusalem church. And what does he find? He finds a cold shoulder and an unwelcome stance. Thank God that there is one. And so, folks, we, we, we're having a trickling of visitors. My challenge to you is be a bigger Christian. Go out of your way. If they're not sitting with someone, sit with them or have them sit with you. They might not know what a Bible is and where to find a book in the Bible. Help them. Help them with the singing of the song. That's a bigger Christian. I say, first of all, the bigger Christian is the first one to reconcile. Secondly, the bigger Christian is the first one to receive. Let me give you a third one quickly, if I could. Uh, look there in First uh, Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel chapter 17. Now, some of you readily make friends wherever you go. And that's a good thing, I guess. But you know, not everybody makes friends easily. And if you are the kind that it's difficult to make new friends in a new place, in a new church, in a new school, then of all people you should be sympathetic to when somebody comes in the Christian direction, that's the time to be a bigger Christian, receive them. I give you a third thing, 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. And I mentioned this just a few minutes ago. The Bible says, 1 Samuel 17, 4, And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. We all know the story of David and Goliath. Here, Goliath was a giant of a man, nine foot six, I think they say, and uh, he represented the Philistine army, and he mocked the Jewish army. And he mocked the Jews' God. And he, he, said, he said, listen, instead of all of us fighting all of you, how about you, Jews, send one soldier, and I will come out representing the Philistines. And how about just the two of us fight, and the winner takes all. Well, as soon as Goliath made that, everybody on the Jewish side, their knees started knocking. All the way from King Saul, who should have stepped up and taken the charge. Saul himself was head and shoulders above all the other Jews, but he didn't. And you know, as you begin to read more of 1 Samuel 17, we find that David has been sent by his father to deliver a care package to his three oldest brothers. And David hears this taunting by Goliath. Goliath taunted for 40 days. And David is looking around and says, well, where's the lineup to go fight that loudmouth? And there's, there is no lineup. And when David volunteers, look at verse 32. 1 Samuel 17, verse 32 and David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. They looked at him and they, they began to talk him out of it. 
They began to say, you're not able, you're not capable. And David said, but I'm willing to try. Could I give you a third thing? Would you write this down? The bigger Christian is the first to risk it. The bigger Christian is the first to risk it. You say, risk what? Risk taking on a task that he had never done before. We know that he fought a lion before. He fought a bear before. We know that. We know that David had never fought before anyone the likes of Goliath. And well, all of the rest of them in the Jewish camp convinced themselves, I can't. David said, I'm willing to try it. And could I say to you that God is going to open opportunities for you. And instead of convincing yourself, I've never done that before. I will say, Lord, I'm willing to risk it. I'll try it. I'll try it. I still remember when I graduated from Bible college, went back to Niagara Falls. In short order, the pastor came to me and he said, now I'd like you to do something in our church. I thought he was going to ask for me to preach. <laughs> he didn't. He said, I'd like you to do the finances of our church. Now I had taken accounting in high school, but this is now what, five years later and I said, preacher, I don't know if I'd be capable of doing that. He said, I'm not asking if you have experience. He said, would you try it? I said, yeah, I'll try it. Do you know the bigger Christian is the first to risk it? Shortly after there, he came up and he said, while you're doing the finances, I'd like you to do something else. I thought he was going to say, I'd like you to preach once more. I said, sure, what? He said, I'd like you to be the song leader. <laughs> okay, I've never done that before, but I'll try. God's going to open doors for you. And instead of kind of slithering back and staying within the crowd of people that also have slithered back, I say, I'll try it. And it might not work, but I'm willing to try. I say the third thing is a bigger Christian is the first to risk it. It should have been Saul that took the challenge, or it should have been David's oldest brother, Eliab, that took the challenge. But none of them did that. A preacher, if someone else will go first, then I will. No one else went before David. He said, I'll go. A lot of people say, well, preacher, I've just never done anything like that before. David had never done anything like this before. A preacher, if God will guarantee me success, David had no guarantee of success. A preacher, if, if I have people that encourage me. Do you know David did not have people that encouraged him? King Saul said, you can't. His oldest brother said, you're a naughty person. I say third, the bigger Christian is the first to risk it. I give you the last thing, John chapter 12. John chapter number 12 Again, this 24th principle is to be the bigger Christian. Whatever the situation, be it a brand new opportunity. Maybe there's just friction between you and another. Maybe someone new has come along and it seems everybody's afraid. Let you be the bigger Christian. Don't wait for someone else to do what you do at John chapter 12. Look there in verse number 3. 
The Bible says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. In the previous chapter, John chapter 11, we know that Lazarus got sick. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Come quickly, Lazarus is sick. Instead of Jesus coming quickly, he took his time. By the time Jesus got there to Bethany, Lazarus was dead. And we know in John chapter 11 that God raised Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 12, we know that uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus hosted a meal at their home. They invited Jesus, was in their home. Martha, of course, made a supper. Lazarus sat at the table with Christ. Look what Mary did. Mary, maybe we, we pick on Mary, but maybe Mary wasn't that good in the kitchen. I can understand someone not being good in the kitchen. <laughs> maybe that just wasn't her strength. And maybe as Mary watched Martha cook up a storm and did such a good job at it, and then as Mary looked at Lazarus, her now risen brother, sitting at the table with Jesus and talking, Maybe Mary figured, I can't cook. It's not my strength. I can't talk. That's not my strength. But I want to do something that tells Jesus that I love him. What does she do? John 12, verse 3. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. The house had been filled with the smell of food cooking. Martha got credit for that. The house had been filled with Bible spiritual discussion. Lazarus could be credited for that. And Mary said, I, I've got to be able to do something. And she went and got this ointment. The Bible says it was very costly. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and dried his feet with her hair. Could I say finally, the bigger Christian is the first to relinquish. Relinquish is give up. Relinquish. You know what she, could I, could I say this maybe? It didn't cost Lazarus too much to sit at a table and talk to Jesus. There's not a lot of an expense in talking. I know that Martha had to come up with the supplies to make that meal. I understand that. So there was a little bit of cost there. But do you understand what Mary gave that day, what she gave up, it says was very costly. I wonder, are you willing to give up something that's even very costly to let Jesus know that you love him? That's a bigger Christian. It's easy to give up things that don't cost anything. It's easy if we do that which is convenient for us. But when we begin to think, when, when the, maybe God convicts a heart. God's saying, I, I'd like you to do this. But Lord, if I do that, I'll have to give that up. Would you be willing to give that up for me? I've given you four things. And, and the principles of, will you be the bigger Christian? If it's having ought with somebody, will you take the first step? Say, well, preachers, no, I know, but will you take the first step to fix it? 
Secondly, if there is somebody new and they're kind of out of their environment and, 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 and they never, maybe they've never been to church, or, will you be the first to go try to pull them in, welcome them in? If there is an opportunity, but great risk involved, would you be the first to risk it? Finally, will you be the first to give up that which is precious to you? She had to be saving that ointment for some special occasion. And yet on this day, she said, there's no one I could give it to that would be more worthy than Jesus Christ, the bigger Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this 24th principle. Lord, it has nothing to do with doctrine. It has to do with practice. And Lord, so many times we, we watch Christians who are in a situation. And it's so easy when we are in a situation to just kind of fade into the background and let somebody take care of it. Help us, Lord, to take the high road. Help us, Lord, to be the bigger Christian. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.